you guys can just make me depressed for the rest of the <laughs> yeah depressing. yeah it's gonna be awful uh you're yeah. gonna hate it yeah that's why <laughs> I, I... I tell you i don't care what they call me they can call me a marxist a jesuit a flat earther a trotskyite a vegetarian i don't care what i'm called because i know why they call us names it's because they dare not face our arguments hello and welcome to most moderate podcast where our demands most moderate are we only want the earth my name's brandon i'm alex and i'm miguel and today we'll discuss the upcoming union vote in bessemer alabama against amazon and then um miguel and alex will make us depressed talking about uh the climate catastrophe looking really forward to that so let's start with some like more at least exciting news before we just Mm -hmm. get doom pilled uh for the rest of this okay so on to the news uh monday um Two days after the recording of this episode, uh, workers at a Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, will have a union vote. Uh, all the ballots will be due on that day, um, and this is quite monumental, right? Uh, Amazon is widely seen as like, along with like Walmart, is the great white whale uh, of union organizing. They are incredibly capable at union busting, and they have endless resources to do it uh and uh and i don't want to make uh the efforts by amazon the main focus of this segment um but just some of the methods they've done is they've uh uh, one they did the standard we're going to put uh anti-union propaganda all over the shop two we're going to bring we're going to force workers who we don't give any breaks to like we give a 15 minute break on a 10 hour shift kind of thing we're going to give them multiple anti-union meetings where our uh uh experts uh come in and talk to the workers about why uh they don't want to uh unionize um they've uh set up a mailbox outside of the facility saying hey leave your um uh ballots here which uh is against uh the labor law and the nlrb mm-hmm. uh they've uh, started using targeted ads uh, uh focusing on uh people in bessemer alabama uh with non-union ads which Given uh, how big Amazon's web services are and their reach, you know, that's quite worrying uh, uh, because, you know, 50 years ago, right, the most a boss could do is put uh, signs around, you know, your town and in the shop. Uh, They could do the meetings and stuff like that. But now every time you open your phone, you're going to get an anti-union ad. That's quite dystopian. Um, and they've done so much more to the point where it's insane. And we'll have to see after this vote, which either way it goes, uh, how the NLRB is going to respond to some of it. Um, uh, but if this uh, vote, uh, if these workers decide to vote, uh, this will be the bi- biggest union election in years. And not in numbers, but in impact. So the uh, union uh, that's organizing 
uh, these workers. Uh, the name is slipping me right now. Uh, the RWDSU um, has go apparently have gotten like over a thousand calls across the country about, hey, how can we do this here? Um, and so if this goes, ev even if this fails, right, it's still a victory, right? This is the biggest, uh, most visible union campaign in years, only comparable to like the Chicago's teacher strikes and the walkouts. And this is just a union vote. So it's quite mm -hmm. dramatic. And hopefully it would serve as an example for the rest of Amazon uh, workers. Um, Amazon is the second largest uh, non-government employer in America, following Walmart, which we also need to unionize because they're also shit. Um, and, oh, no, they're notoriously bad when it comes to that. Um, and, you know, you guys have probably seen uh, some of Amazon's stands on uh, Twitter uh, going yes. off on, like, hey... We're like the private Bernie Sanders and, and things <laughs> like that because we have a 15-hour minimum wage for our warehouse employees when that's far below the average of what a warehouse employee makes. Um, and so they are vastly underpaying uh, these workers. I'm, and also, uh, who, who pressured Amazon to, to set up a $15 minimum wage? I can't remember right now. Who was it? Yeah, doesn't she have like a recall election against her? <laughs> uh, yeah, because she almost won. Uh, and I think uh, you're going too hard here on Amazon because uh, you know <laughs> other other companies have public bathrooms, but as far as I heard, they have private piss bottles. Am I right oh. here? Or? Oh, do you actually believe everything you read? Uh, yeah, you don't, don't really know. believe that, do you? Do you? Uh, <laughs> Well, um, uh, we, we will see how that one plays out, to say the least. Yeah. I bet you have uh, seen the conversation on Twitter, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the, okay. Uh, the dunking on, on Amazon last week yeah. has been spot on. The best throughout this whole uh, campaign. Um, and so, uh, the even if we need to discuss what happens if the workers make the right decision, in my point of view, and uh, join the union. Um, so first, uh, if the vote is successful, Amazon has to come to an agreement with the union on a contract. Uh, companies have been known in the past to draw this out as long as they can um, to weaken the unions. Um, if you're in negotiation for a year or two, you're not getting any of the demands you uh, wanted uh, you know, during the election campaign and stuff, uh, it's quite common uh, tactic. And this is something the PRO Act, uh, to some extent, wants to address. But So, and then there's worries about what Amazon uh, might do extra-legally. So there's an example, and I'm getting this from a CNN article, um, how there's a successful Walmart union effort by a group of butchers in 2000. And then months later, uh, Walmart said it would cease in-house butchering services in favor of supplying prepackaged meat. Um, and so you could, um, Amazon could uh, close down the facility in Bessemer if they, they want it. They're not 
supposed to. Um, right. But the uh, runaway shop phenomenon could happen uh, because it's not exactly like we enforce labor law in this country. Um, it's just a suggestion. And really, it's, <laughs> you follow it to protect yourself more from lawsuits than the government. Um, and so certainly I hope this uh, campaign passes. I hope this inspires uh, a growth in the labor movement, particularly in the South. Though I would like to, like, a lot of people, I've been seeing this quite often, they uh, hear, oh, that this is in Alabama, uh, and it's a red state, so, like, it's not going to succeed, or, like, why are they even unionizing there? Like, um, you know, the South hates unions and stuff like that, um, which I think it's important uh, to understand this region has a deep, powerful labor history, um, and just in that region, there's, like, Poultry workers are unionized. There's unionized warehouses in the city. Um, it, it's like, and for a lot of Alabama's history, it had a higher union density than the rest of the country. Uh, Bessemer's by no means a union town, at least not yet. Uh, but, you know, it's not shocking uh, that it's happening there, particularly when a lot of the employees are um, black workers in the South which have a strong union militancy uh, history. Um, and so, do you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns? Well, I mean, even if what you just mentioned about the uh, history, even if that wasn't the case, you still cannot give up on, like, vast swathes of the country. Like, <laughs> a, even if they didn't have a history, it would be a great moment to start. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It provides an example that it can be done anywhere like that. Say unions in my state uh, could fight back, um, which I would kill for. <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> sentiment it would, uh -huh. redacted. That um, would be a great thing. Uh, and it's been strange to see some like Republican politicians come out in support of this. Uh, I view that as like, just a naked ploy to like try to you know do the Tucker Carlson thing of I represent the white working class kind of mm -hmm. shtick, um, but you know that's worrying. Uh, it's a worrying development. If the Republicans uh, tried to do more of that rhetoric, you know, the Democratic Party is not exactly the party of labor anymore, uh, and uh, you know a more competitive uh, Republican Party on labor issues would be a negative development. Um, the, uh, how do I want to phrase this? Mm, I don't know. I don't know how I want to phrase it, so I'll just not phrase it at all. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, okay. it's, yeah, I don't want to speak completely out of my ass, but I, I do think, you know, uh, on one hand, it'd be good. Hey, there's a broad consensus that, you know, unions matter, and you know, things like that, but it, uh, that's not the case. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm in support of the creation of the Labour Party, but uh, at least the Democratic parties doesn't want to actively, well, they do, but they don't want to, like, actively divide the labor movements and uh, reinforce uh, discriminations against vast segments of the working class. Uh, and so I think 
calling out Republicans on this and calling out Democrats on how bad they are when it comes to labor issues is quite important. And uh, getting involved in unions, uh, supporting unions if you don't have a union, forming unions, you know, things that socialists and leftists like across the country can do uh, is pivotal in this moment to help build an alternative to these kinds of politics. Um, but I am so, I really hope this passes, right? And I hope it inspires a strike wave um, because it's very exciting. Uh, Alex, you got anything? Well, I, I'm not really, I don't really know too much about the demographic, um, mm -hmm. you know, in America as well. Uh, I know a lot about uh, Red Scare politics, and I, I really hope um, that sentiment from like 50 years ago can finally be overcome. Like I, I have Ronald Reagan in mind who always uh, yeah, spread fear of communist Russia and communism in general and communist this, communist that. And um, the only way for workers to have a say in what happens to them and in their life is to uh, work together, literally. Like mm -hmm. um, they, the problem is uh, most workers don't have the financial background to just stop working. Like yeah. that's a, a huge point where workers are in a bad place when, when it comes to negotiations. Mm -hmm. So um, they have little power in uh, comparison to their um, employer or to the capitalists and that means uh, the little power they have to they desperately need to band together and yeah get a better uh, position when it comes to negotiations and uh, i'm really thankful that you've opened my eyes to um, that line of history uh, brendan because i never really considered this and yeah yeah uh, uh, so... i'm all in for unions <laughs> yeah so um the uh you know reds you know this red scare we've had it heavily in this country since well nineteen eighteen uh where um you know which really uh the, the first red scare and then the second in the forties uh put a cap on anything the labor movement could achieve in this country, and I do think we're finally getting past that i saw that you know. Bernie Sanders is just a social democrat. I'm not going to give him anything more than that. Uh, but he's going down to talk to the uh, workers in Bessemer. I think that's a positive development. Yeah. Um, um, Definitely. You know, like you know, it's... I think I think getting people who like people at least think as a socialist out there on the uh, with the workers talking to them is important. Um, I think the work of Socialist Alternative DSA and uh, other socialist groups in the region has been fantastic. Um, and then that labor history, um, particularly in Alabama, Georgia and stuff, uh, it's, there's a pretty good book. It's called Hammers and Hoes. Every leftist in this country raves about it, but it discusses uh, the uh, success of the Communist Party USA uh, in the 1930s they had in the South because at the time the Communist Party was the only party for uh, racial des desegregation and civil rights. And they uh, 
focused heavily on uh, organizing uh, black workers in the South. And so this uh, uh, current, you know, a lot of it's died out, but there's remnants and it, it's uh, good. Um, and you should I put think, it in the show notes because I have I, read I this one. I'll definitely try to read it. Sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, you know, and then we think a lot about the labor movement here in the States and we think of New England and the Midwest, Chicago uh, and Minneapolis, you know, things like that. These are the cities in New York that come to mind. Uh, but we have a honestly more interesting <laughs> labor movement uh, in the South and the West. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the times where workers have literally taken up arms and shot at uh, the bosses and cops has been in the South and has been in the West, uh, which I think does play into our stereotypes of, of, of my home. Uh, here in Oklahoma, agricultural workers and, uh, you know, at the outbreak of, well, the American uh, entrance into uh, the First World War and the uh, institution of a draft uh, took up arms against the government. Uh, like our labor history is really cool. Uh, you, we, you know, we had strikes and things like that happening in the north and stuff. But if you want, like, just the most insane stories, you look at Southern labor. <laughs> unfortunately, you know, quite a few of them, especially ones in white-dominated trades, were very reactionary um, because of you know the dominance of well white people and uh the southern democrats who were extremely racist um and pro segregation but it, it's pretty cool and it's with that racist. <laughs> with that i'm gonna wrap up our new segment and miguel would you like to start us off on the discussion on the climate catastrophe yeah sure so uh if you don't want to continue listening uh <laughs> i guess the the tldr would be climate colon still fact uh so if you think back to like a year ago at the beginning of the pandemic you know uh there were all of these images like dolphins in the venice canals uh, like deer in the cities and the site of the himalayas that you could now see uh, because there was no smog and there was this idea that spread around that like maybe this could be good for the climate you know like there's a decrease in production we are going to be uh, polluting less and whatnot but uh, the numbers came in then, and uh, we found out that there was in total a 7% reduction in carbon emissions, which is not nothing, but it's nowhere near what we need. And uh, the predictions for the temperature rises are lowered by 0.01 degrees Celsius, which is also quite far away from the levels that we need to be aiming for if we want to avoid a fucked up dystopia. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. Wait, uh, you don't want to live in like a Mad Max world? What's wrong with you? Uh, the, the thing I mean, about, can, can I, I, I have got a pretty good thing about this because uh, the Mad Max world fails in one point because it doesn't consider uh, the peak oil day. So uh, when we enter this dystopia, we won't even have cool cars to drive around the desertificated <laughs> landscapes. Oh. So it's not even worth it. Yeah, it's oh. not even worth it. Okay, too bad then. 
Yeah. Uh, and I want to go a hundred miles on a broken highway. You know, I can't do that here in America. Uh, I don't have the Autobahn. We have in Germany. Hmm. All right. Yeah, I'm sorry for interrupting you with my shitty jokes. Yeah. It's all right. <laughs> we need shitty jokes. So, man. yeah, yeah. Otherwise, this is going to be very sad. Yeah. Uh, so, usually a huge economic crisis is bad news for climate uh, because it means that more investment is needed in other areas. You know, after the Great Recession, there was no money to be spending around on, like, uh, sustainable stuff. Uh, but obviously, the, the counter-argument to that would be that, well, you know, it's also an opportunity uh, to bring about like a Green New Deal uh, staff investment. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can uh, bring back jobs, uh, decarbonizing our economy. Uh, you know, we have a chance to, to, to kill two birds with one stone. Uh, the main problem is that we are not taking that chance. Mm. So which I know should come as a surprise to everyone uh, that our governments and our businesses are not doing what's best for all. Uh, but uh, sadly, it's what's happening. Uh, so, uh, Big I, if true. <laughs> so I have like uh, uh, some notes on like different places around the world and what they are doing. And uh, nothing is perfect and many things are far from perfect. Uh, so let's get started with Australia which is going forward with what the government is calling a gas-led recovery uh, because they call gas oh. a... <laughs> Dude, Australians' politics are, like, just as dumb as American politics. Yeah. But dial to 11. It, it, it is <laughs> insane. Um, but as we go into this, I'll tell you how Oklahoma is the exact same. <laughs> Continue. So they are calling gas a transition fuel. Uh, what something being a transition usually means is that it's a transition to uh, green stuff. So like, you know, nuclear is usually seen as a transition between fossil fuels and uh, renewable energies. The people uh, over at the Juice Media who make honest government ads, which are hilarious and everyone should go watch them because they are great, <laughs> uh, say that gas is what's called a transition fuel because it fuels the transition of dollars from public coffers into the bank accounts of private companies who pay no tax and create shit tons of emissions, which is a pretty accurate way of describing what's going on. So uh, the Australian government is planning uh, to open up a number of new basins to uh, extract gas. And the Australian broadcasting company uh, said, uh, the ABC, the public uh, media uh, there said that if developed just one of these new basins, uh, government estimates show it could result in as much as 117 million tons of CO2 being added to our emissions each year almost a quarter of our current total yearly emissions. Adding that to our emissions tally will make meeting Paris targets much harder, and it means we'll have to find cuts in other areas, which the government doesn't yet have a plan for. So that's going to be great. That's going to be awesome. Uh, everybody's going to love that. Uh, the At least uh, after the 2020 uh, fires, the Australian government decided to recognize that climate change is going on and use words like mm -hmm. resilience and adaptation and all those things. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they are still pulling this shit. So, yeah, it's they've been particularly uh, bad about uh, climate denial for a very yeah. long time. 
so I'm going to say it now. Fuck the Liberal Party of Australia. And fuck <laughs> Scott Morrison. Um, and it's, you know, it's like asking Boris Johnson uh, <laughs> to not fuck up Brexit, right? It's not going to happen. <laughs> um, and so, and I think the comparison between Scott Morrison uh, and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump are quite fitting. Um because they're all wildly incompetent uh, and extremely dangerous. Um, you know, I think, um, he, you know, here in Oklahoma, we have a similar thing, and it's also a thing in Texas. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> we've we been pushing natural gas heavily, which uh, makes sense. Like, our economy is run on fossil fuels. Uh, without it, our economy would be destroyed um, locally. Uh, and the uh, and I think we'll go into this more a little bit later of solutions, you know, things like that, and what like socialist a uh, world federalist vision of, like to tackle this would be. Um, but you know, that's it's like we have to figure out what are we going to do <laughs> about these regions that without oil production, like I think of like Scandinavia and like uh, countries that like. The only reason they have they can afford um, you know, social democracy is oil in the North Sea. You know, it, it's you know these things are going to crop up, uh, and then of course we can get into discussions of eco-fascism, which cool. Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, continue, Miguel. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's uh, now go to our home, the European Union. That is Alex and my home. Uh, because we have our own uh, bullshit going on. So ever since the last elections to the European Parliament and the new commission was inaugurated, the von der Leyen Commission, uh, they have had this Green Deal as it's uh, one of their like staple policies, one of their most important things that programs that they were pushing. Green Deal, mind you, not Green New Deal, because we are not communists, obviously. Uh, but still, mm -hmm. like... Uh, uh, you know, a sustainable plan. The idea is to make the European Union carbon neutral by 2050, which might be a little too late, but I guess yeah. it's better which than nothing. Late, too late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, and then, you know, and I, I, I want to like emphasize, you know, just one thing, and it's like, you know, with with the EU, there's certain countries within it that have like. A positive global image of hey they care about like environmental policy uh germany comes to mind uh, at least here in the states you know we think of those far left radical germans uh <laughs> who actually care about uh economic uh, economic uh, policy and uh and the environment um but you know a lot of it is well no they're just transporting their coal to hungary so um <laughs> you know emissions are somewhat better <laughs> but then hungary's like Pump, 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 pumping it all up <laughs> into the atmosphere for them. Um, which, you know, Hungary's now saying that they want to phase it out by 2030, but yeah. too late, you know? But anyways. You know this meme, like, where this four-panel meme, uh, when there's this poor guy um, always, yeah, how's it going? Um, in this case, how's it going? Climate change, uh, counter-activity by neoliberal politics and uh, it would be uh, just yeah driving your driving folders 
Yeah, it's a Sisyphean task trying to yeah, yeah. In, cla- in climate change with liberal go- liberal and conservatives. <laughs> Although the uh, transformation of society we need quite more radical. But mm-hmm. I'll, I'll talk about that later. No, okay. so inter- all right. Uh, so even despite the pandemic last December, uh, EU leaders agreed to uh, more ambitious targets uh, by 2030, mm-hmm. which was good, uh, despite pressure uh, from Poland and Hungary, precisely because they are the coal mines of Europe. Uh, so I guess that is uh, more or less okay. Uh, but now we get yep. to the negative part. Uh, because on Monday, last Monday, uh, French publication Context leaked the new European Union's sustainable finance rules. Uh, now, I don't speak French, so this is from a Greenpeace uh, article. Uh, well, because I... France anyways. <laughs> uh, so the, the idea uh, in this document uh, is that this rulebook will establish what the European Union considers as sustainable investments. And those sustainable investments are eligible for hundreds of billions of dollars in public aid. Uh, so it's uh, quite important what they say here because it will like uh, nudge the market in certain directions. And you know, if you believe that the market is an appropriate solution to climate change, this is how you do it. So what's in this uh, rule book? It's great. It's absolutely great. Uh, so first of all, aviation is considered a sustainable uh, uh, practice. Uh, it's considered a transition <laughs> practice. Uh, so yeah, that's great. That's uh, what the fuck? What what? That, what the fuck? Like, I uh, I don't even know how to take it. Like, it, there's no justification uh, for it. Dude, that's uh, like you might as well put like cruise liners on there <laughs> if you're going to have airliners on there. For fuck's sake. Oh, I hate liberals. Okay, continue. <laughs> uh, so there are also loose, uh, looser emissions thresholds for the production of, of hydrogen, which obviously hydrogen is also seen as like a cleaner alternative to fossil fuels, but it's only and a cleaner alternative. It is only a cleaner alternative if there are some restrictions on how it is produced. But if we are loosening up the restrictions, then what even is the fucking point? Uh, this was a very strong demand by the gas companies, and they have uh, agreed to it. Locker. And finally, the Nordic forestry industry also gets a bone because there were going to be some re- requirements that uh, in order for uh, forest management to be considered sustainable, there had to be some like uh, particular practices required, and those were scrapped. So any forest management is now sustainable which is what the uh, logging industry in the Nordic countries wanted. So that's also good. Uh, Put on paper. Not even. Not even. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what the European Union is up to. Uh, it's great. It's great. I'm loving it. Um, I'm loving it. <laughs> and then uh, in sort of related news, the European Court of Justice rejected an effort on Thursday to force the European Union to set more ambitious climate targets. This was a result of a legal action launched by the Swedish Sami Youth Organization, alongside people from other European countries, as well as Kenya and Fiji. The European Court of Justice ruled that the people who launched this initiative 
would not be, quote, individually concerned with the European Union's carbon emissions policy, so the case will not be heard. Now, I may understand the legal reasoning behind the decision, but then again, A, uh, fact legal reasoning, and B, saying that anyone on planet Earth will not be individually concerned by this, does not sound quite, does not sound quite right to me. Um, particularly countries that are going to disappear in the next couple of <laughs> decades. I think they yeah. have a vested concern in uh, rising sea level. <laughs> that, that's just like, <laughs> come the, if, if you're going to make a BS reason to dismiss their claims, just say they're not in the European Union, so fuck off. Like, <laughs> that, that's it. Like, but to say they don't have a best, like, oh my god. Ugh. I'm so, you guys are making me angry. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, don't worry, because we are, we are going over to the United States right now, and it's also not good. Um, so the USA has been sending out uh, mixed signals at best. On his first day in office, President Joe Biden signed an executive order to re-enter the, Pir the Paris Climate Accord, which is the bare minimum. I mean, it's better than anything uh, President Trump did, because how could it not be? But it's the bare minimum. And then uh, earlier this month, the administration released the 2021 Trade Policy Agenda and 2020 Annual Report. Uh, and in that document, uh, they proposed uh, what are called carbon border adjustments. According to, I'm just going to read the definition of what this is from the website OECD Development Matters, uh, carbon border adjustment mechanisms tax imported goods based on their carbon footprint with the aim of limiting emissions leakage and leveling the playing field for domestic industries that produce goods with lower greenhouse gas emission footprints that, than imports that may have cheaper, that, that may be cheaper, but have higher greenhouse gas footprints. So basically, you are taxing imports based on the carbon they produce. Oh no, trouble in paradise. He's gonna come back. I crashed out as I always do. Oh, I just figured the Spanish government got to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, it's always a threat. Yeah. Hopefully uh, we you don't become any more famous than the, like, 15 people who regularly listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God forbid. Uh... Okay, I'm gonna uh, read that again. Uh, Go ahead. So, uh, carbon border adjustments, uh, according to the OECD Development Matter websites, uh, are mechanisms that tax imported goods based on their carbon footprint with the aim of limiting emissions leakage and leveling the playing field for domestic industries that produce goods with lower greenhouse gas emission footprints than imports that may be cheaper but have higher greenhouse gas footprints. So it's basically like a carbon tariff. You are taxing mm -hmm. imports uh, based on how much carbon they produce, because maybe the countries that they come from don't have carbon regulations, and it would be sort of unfair to uh, your national industry that does have uh, some uh, like environmental regulations to have these very cheap imports coming in that don't even have to comply with those rules. So this is not necessarily a bad idea. Now, obviously, right. the question is, who is ending up paying for these taxes? Because it's probably going to be the working people of those uh, third countries uh, who right. end up bearing the brunt, as they always do. Well, uh, also of 
customers uh, like uh and consumers uh, yeah so the working class here in uh countries with good policies uh <laughs> uh but um you know it's also you know th- you know it's the same with like uh really most taxes uh that aren't just on the rich uh mm-hmm. it, it just penalizes being poor Right. Um, you know, it's the same with just a carbon tax in particular. It's not targeting uh, effectively the people who are really to blame, right? This tariff is just going to be put on to the consumers. And, th- you know, if anything, they could just, oh, we're, we're going to focus less on being environmental sustainable, make it cheaper to produce, and, and keep sending it over there because we're going to end up paying this tariff anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It, 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 like, it... It's not like in the abstract, it's not the worst idea, right? But you know, it's just fundamentally incapable of uh, putting any challenge on this. It's the same issues when people talk about putting uh, tariffs on uh, countries with unfair labor practices. That doesn't hurt the company employee doing unfair labor practices, it hurts the working class consumers of that product. Um, anyways. I'll stop raining. And that's not even the worst part of it. Uh, like, here's the thing. What uh, the administration is proposing that the U.S. do, they are getting a bit upset when other people do it. So uh, carbon border adjustments are also a key part of the European Union's Green Deal. And John Kerry, who, let's remember, it's the Biden administration's climate czar, has expressed concern about the implication of such a scheme in the European case uh, and says that it should only be a measure of last resort. So what is it, John? Is this good? Is this a good well, measure? Or or are you just now, uh, is it just a, a protectionist measure that when somebody else applies it, you don't like it? Yeah, so one, it's just another. Two, anything dealing with america is yes this is a measure of last resort because we can't get our <laughs> shit together and uh even if uh certain regions of our country got our shit together the rest would be like i don't believe in climate change right so Right. And here's the thing. Uh, French finance minister Bruno Le Maire proposed that the European Union and the USA work together on a common green tax system. And when... <laughs> and when asked about it, John Kerry told the Financial Times that, quote, obviously, the United States has strong feelings about not having excessive regulation, end mm. quote. Because, you know, the death of everybody we hold dear would be bad, but excessive regulation would be even worse. I'm so <laughs> upset. <laughs> I, I, 
Oh my gosh, I can't believe John Kerry was almost the president of the United States. Oh, what a fucking idiot. Well, he's only parroting what Biden wants, but he's still a fucking idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say that much. Uh, so that's a an overview of some of the government side stuff. Uh, but they are not the only ones who are concerned about climate change, or so they say, because some very smart big boys also have some ideas uh, that they are trying to push for. Uh, so let's talk about carbon capture. Carbon capture Can we not? use... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but we have to. Uh, it's awful. Uh, it's uh, Yeah, no, like, I wish we didn't have to because it's a stupid thing, but we kind of have to. Uh, so carbon capture usage and storage is sort of an umbrella term used to refer to a number of ways in which we can stop carbon from being released into the atmosphere or retrieve carbon that is already in the atmosphere, put it away, and maybe put it to some use. In a way, carbon capture is nothing new. It's what trees do. They suck up carbon from the atmosphere. They release oxygen. That's carbon capture in a way. What? Uh, But uh, carbon capture technology is more than that. It involves not only sucking carbon from the atmosphere, but also preventing it from being released with like better chimney filters. And I'm not opposed to better chimney filters, but I don't think that's going to be the solution to climate change. Yeah, well, it's the same as, you know, I'm not opposed to reforming the cops, but I don't think there should be cops. You know, it's it's like, yes, chimney filters, but also no chimneys, please. Right. (laughs) And the thing is that, uh, so I don't know, maybe there's a way to make... uh, chimneys less polluting like i don't know about this but when we talk about carbon capture we are usually referring to a magical machine that will allow us to retrieve all the carbon that is in the atmosphere put it away somewhere we don't really know where and forget about the problem that's really what carbon what like the carbon capture gurus are all about yeah and so so Carbon capture is seen by last by some as the last great hope to fight off climate change. And these are some of the very smart people that we are talking about. The very mm-hmm. smart boys. In January, Elon Musk, everybody's favorite entrepreneur, uh, announced that he would donate $100 million to develop the best carbon capture technology available. And he, he put it off like, like a tweet, of course. He tweeted it off sort of like a contest, like... You know, uh, this is a contest, and, and whichever one is the best, we are going to develop that. Uh, and if neither, if none of them are the best, I guess we all die. It's like a fun contest, you know. Uh, <laughs> and Death he's not the ultimate prize, perfect. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he's not the only one. Uh, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are also very enthusiastic about carbon capture, putting in millions of dollars into different endeavors. And also, major oil companies are interested in the idea. And you know what they say. When Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Big Oil are on your side, you know you are right. Right. Uh, So obviously, carbon capture is a great idea. Now, sadly, some people have some concerns about it. Uh, So (laughs) I know, right? It's outrageous. So I I just want to say, yeah, and 
they are right in a way. It is kind of like the only like last great hope for them, right? It's the only way we'll mm-hmm. tack it, tackle climate change and uh, and you know all the issues uh, without without touching systems of power. Without that touching systems of power and without taking their wealth and nationalizing their businesses, right? That is the exactly. only way. Uh, uh, that we can avoid that. And so, of course, they're going to be putting uh, billions of dollars into it. <laughs> the problem is, it, well, the way I see it is I wouldn't care if on the side they were doing this. But these people dictate government policy because fundamentally our mm-hmm. governments are run by the rich. And so, yes, he's going to spend $100 million and the U.S. government's just going to subsidize that. And even if this magical device worked which I have my doubts. Uh, okay, we're just going to keep burning fossil fuels. Oh, there's no positive events. We're still going to run out at some point. They're finite resources. Right. We need to have this transition now. We, we might as well do it with our backs against the wall. If you want to spend your, your, like, you have so much wealth, you can't possibly spend it on that. Well, fuck you. You shouldn't exist, but okay. <laughs> but stop getting in the way of public policy. You know, Bill Gates uh, recently uh, was smack talking uh, the Green New Deal, which doesn't go far enough, mind you, uh, about you know the federal jobs guarantee, which is a necessary component of any uh, ecological uh, program because. People in Oklahoma are going to lose their jobs, right? And they need something. Right. Um, you know, it's you know the fight against capitalism and for workers' rights, and the fight against you know the extinction of the human race is one and the same. Sorry, yeah, it was like friend. No, like it was exactly my last point that it shouldn't be surprising that the people who benefit the most from the status quo are also pushing for the solution, quote unquote, that allows us to change the status quo the least. So, yeah, that's exactly correct. Uh, So, as I was saying, not everybody is super convinced about carbon capture. So, Jonathan Foley, executive director of Project Drawdown, a climate nonprofit, says that, and I'm quoting here, there's no viable path to stopping climate change that doesn't begin with stopping emissions as quickly as we can. Do you know how hard it is to remove CO2 from the air using the machine? It is really, really hard. It's a lot easier just not to put it in there. And the thing is, uh, I don't know if you know this video uh, by Hank Green, who I'm sure most people know. Yeah. Uh, so the YouTuber. A, yeah, the YouTuber. Uh, he made a video called something like the most terrifying graph I've already seen, I've, I've ever mm-hmm. seen, or something like that. And it's about how uh, much carbon we have already put in the atmosphere and how much climate change we have already signed up for. And to fix that, if, if we are able at any point to capture carbon from the atmosphere uh, like in a massive way, it would be beneficial. It would be a good thing. But it cannot be the only thing. We need to decarbonize no. either way uh, because it doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. And yeah. even if it did, I doubt that, you know, like maybe we can capture some carbon at some point. But the idea that we are just going to get rid of the problem uh, by taking it all out of the atmosphere, I mean, not all, some uh, some of it is like a natural component of the atmosphere, but still, uh, 
that we are going to retrieve all the carbon that we have put over the past 200 years there. And we are going to store it God knows where. That's the other point. Where well, does it all they, go? Have they uh, considered popping a hole in the balloon and there it can just flow out and then we can close the hole? Has that that's, been that's actually that's actually a very good idea. Uh, uh, we can oh. tweet it at. We Elon live in Musk. a balloon, right? Yeah, right. yeah, we do, we do. Uh, we we can tweet. Explains that all the hydrogen. That's Sorry, that's a shit joke. Yeah. It was a well, shit. Um, the the underlying problem, in my opinion, is that uh, to the problems that ecological change uh, confronts us with, uh, the industry can put up solutions to earn money with. Just one simple example, like where uh, over the last 20 years, uh, a lot of insects have died. Um, insects create huge value for us because uh, they care for plants in the sense that... And they're yummy. Hmm? And they're delicious to eat. <laughs> insects or plants, I don't know. Um, both. Both, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> The thing is, um, to some companies, it would be favorable if uh, all the insects um, caring for plants would die because they could produce some drones that do essentially the same, but at much higher cost for humanity. Um, it's the same again with, uh, with these uh, carbon capture methods. Uh, what's in the way is the loss of thermodynamics. Like we have two uh, different types of uh, chemical reactions in the world. Uh, it's exothermic and endothermic reactions. Exothermic means uh, while the reactions carried out, um, energy is set free. And endothermic uh, means that if you put energy into it, this uh, and this reaction sees the light of day. Uh, like the the uh, burning a matchstick is exothermic because it keeps on burning and releases energy and endothermic would be like baking a cake where you put in heat or ther thermic energy in order to put up bonds uh, that produce delicious cake. Um, now all the all the CO2 is the is a product of exothermic reactions like we burn fossil fuel which is comprised of large chains of change of uh, carbohydrates in the end and we oxidize it down to co2 and we would have to put energy in to uh, deoxidize the carbon to uh, get back elemental carbon um, but that can only see the light of day if we put an energy so where do we get the energy from the problem here is i see with um, with the supposed devices doing that that um we already already have those devices uh, it's obviously trees in an ultra ecological way they transform the energy we get from the sun for free into decarbonizing carbon wire via enzymatic uh reactions and that's the only way that is ecologically sensible and no technology will any day come close to how efficient trees are when it comes to decarbonizing and uh, de deoxidizing carbon yeah okay uh, th thank you for the explanation <laughs> sorry uh, sorry no, for the trends, no but actually, I'm, I'm, I'm so upset because uh <laughs> we are always about personal freedom and stuff and it's just gone so far that we think yeah. um that uh, we have the freedom to 
destroy ecological sub, uh, systems because we think we are clever enough to replace these ecological systems which are perfectly working by some human-made technology. And that's the hubris of modern humanity. I warn everyone listening to this podcast. Okay, and uh, with that, actually, uh, I guess my report uh, on all of this bullshit is done. And yeah. I am going to give the floor over to Alex. Uh, yeah, yeah. now it's my can... part to nail the final, uh, the, put the final nails into the coffin we call depression. Um, um, so, okay. one second. Uh, Alex, yeah. go into your report. I have to go take a piss. Okay, okay right yeah. I'm going to start here. Um, yeah, so uh, today I want you all to, uh, I want to introduce you all to a new theme on this podcast with the working title at the world in the gamers terms. Maybe you have another better title uh, than me. Just tweet at us. Brendan will tell you our socials <laughs> in the end. Um, in this new segment, I will try to describe uh, the problems of our time in a gamer time terminology. Yeah, and by this, I hope to make the podcast more appealing to gamers to open up a new target demographic um, as well <laughs> playful, aka memeable ways um, to describe our world. Because as German poet Friedrich Schiller said, humans are only humans as long as they play. So um, the topic I obviously want to pick up today is climate change. And I'd like to rea uh, relate um, climate change climate change to the ultra popular game mode these days, which is Battle Royale. I will try to show why it is undesirable to live in a Battle Royale world, IRL, and how left progressive world federalism can prevent uh, such an undesirable future. So let me start out to ex uh, by explaining what Battle Royale is to our filthy non-gamer audience, aka Miguel and Brendan. Um, so they can keep up. Uh, I'm a Royale, gamer. You're I a gamer. Fortnite. You you have a Mac. You have a Mac. You're not a gamer. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> Fuck you. I play console. I played Fortnite. I know what a battle royale is. How dare you? Uh, okay. Even Continue. I know what a battle royale is. So I've seen I'm, the movie. To, I still, I'll still explain it to our boomer audience. So they, I'm okay. sure they don't know. Uh, you're excused then. You can stop showing me your middle finger, Brandon. No. Nope. I'm very offended by that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay, okay. Fucking so, German. Um, keeping up with the explanation, uh, Battle Royale is a game mode that's greatly popularized by PUBG and Fortnite, as we already mentioned, where a set amount of players jump from some kind of aircraft to a freely chosen landing spot on a map um, where the ob objective is to survive and, in fact, to be the last person or team that survives. The players start out with uh, out any resources um, that they need for their fight for survival. So the first objective of each game is gathering the resources necessary, like weapons, armor, ammunition, and different health potions. That process is called looting. Then the, gamer, uh, the game actually starts. Other players or teams will be near you and your job is to essentially kill or eliminate them uh, from the game in order to pick up their loot and to get a step closer to your final goal of being the last fraction alive. The game keeps up its pace because in every game there is a playable zone, the, uh, the so-called ring, that's 
uh, that you're, let's say, heavily incentivized to stay inside of. If you're outside of the ring, you take damage. Uh, and you don't want to take you damage. You die. You're, you're that, yeah. <laughs> um, That's a heavy yeah. incentive. Yeah, heavy incentive. Death. As I <laughs> um, where the ring goes in the end is randomly chosen, chosen each game, and no player knows what to expect of the ring uh, at the beginning of the game. So in the end, your depend uh, your win depends on a few circumstances: your individual skill, of course, uh, the loot you gathered over the course of the game, and uh, to a certain extent, uh, the luck um, with the chosen landing spot in relation to the random ring movement. So how does this game mode at all relate to the problems we are confronted with in terms of climate change? Humanity has essentially manufactured a ring. By fucking up huge ecological systems, we made uh, and continue on making huge parts of our world, uh, world in uninhabitable, effectively reducing the playable area, uh, to come back to gamers' terms. So we have a mechanism that heavily incentivizes people to leave their landing spot and uh, look for a playable area where they are not too prone to dying due to ecological circumstances. Now talking about landing spots, as you probably know by experience, you can't choose where you're born, aka where you're landing. So before... Uh, Wait, you want me to pick your one? spawn point? Yeah, you can't pick your spawn point. This is why you pay a subscription, my dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Keep I, going. I don't know. Like, uh, we, we can have a discussion on this, but I don't think you, you actively picked your spawn point in, in the game we call life. Oh. So um, you just gotta get in with my man guy, and you'll be good. No, no, you're good. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know. Um, that's What's with you know, today? That's an aspect I haven't um, really thought of, but um, I have about let's, four let's hours keep it to a, a more atheistic uh, interpretation of the things. Um, I, I got you. So let's let me get back to this. Uh, you have no idea uh, which side of the ring you're born of. Um, and there are, of course, uh, more favorable places to be born in or to be landing at. Uh, you don't know this beforehand as in the actual game of Battle Royale. Furthermore, humans need resources to survive, from basic necessities like food and shelter to more sophisticated things like pleasure and companionship. If the area you're residing in can offer that to you, you will likely move on. And if you can't even find the most basic things, you are dramatically forced to move on because of, as I already said, being outside the ring heavily incentivizes you to move inside the ring. Mm -hmm. Now, right. uh, concerning the spawn point, the Western world is lucky um, because uh, we essentially already live where the ring moved. Climate change doesn't affect us too much yet, but as a German, I have seen the precursor of what climate change means. Um, to us and of course continued warmongering as well in the Middle East um, because uh, huge quantities of refugees looking for a new playable area uh, where their basic life necessities can be covered. As we, are large, as we are already largely profiteering from the economic conditions that facilitate climate change, climate change and warmongering, those refugees just follow the loot we've stolen from them in uh, the age of colonialism until today. This will cause huge societal problems in the future and huge moral dilemma as well. Um, even though we don't effectively, uh, even though we don't actively kill refugees yet, we essentially let the ring do the work for us because 
It's not our fault if they drown in the Mediterranean Sea. It's a circumstance I personally don't want to see upheld. And if you're somewhat interested in humanistic values, you shouldn't be too. So let me come to my final point, because um, I think the description of the world is already depressing enough now. How can a socialist world federalism overcome the battle royale stage of the world history? First, as by the Club of Rome in its study limits to growth well documented, climate change is only the byproduct of humans' overconsumption of, uh, of humanity's overconsumption of natural resources. It would be a good goal to limit growth human economic activity to the point where our average ecological footprint is brought down to one or even less. For that one I see a planned economy, economy as fit to reach that goal. In the end the free market fails us in a simple sense. It currently values demand over supply, while supply has become the limiting factor for our economy. Simple example, if all guys uh, in the or of, if all people in the world would want wooden chairs like um, an array of wooden chairs without end. Um, we would easily be able to um, allocate all the workforce to towards uh, producing wooden chairs. Um, but one day there will be no more trees left, so the production of uh, wooden chairs would come to a sudden stop. This is easily man manageable because uh, trees regrow, but think of non-renewable resources like oil we need for moving heavy machinery, especially in the uh, agricultural sector, as well as uh, lithium, gallium and germanium, I hope it's the proper term for the English yeah. word, uh, yeah. for computer components. One day these resources will be depleted. And um, from a humanistic standpoint again, by that day we have to make sure that every single person on earth has at least gotten their needs met to a certain extent. For an efficient planned economy, however, we need a capable and first of all democratic world government. Hence my appeal towards world federalism. To all our audience, I hope I could somewhat make clear why we can't keep up our current ways and why I implore you to help to not turn our world into a huge battle royale. The risk to die is just too large, and killing others IRL is just not fun. Right. So I actually quite like this battle royale analogy, um, but I would like to highlight one point, is with the primitive accumula uh, accumulation uh, inherent in the birth of capitalism, which benefited uh, you know, Europe and uh, the United States heavily, right? Uh, if we're going to keep this analogy going, these people landed in the spawn point and they already have the best guns and the best gear in the game, right? And they've already picked points on which they're going to ambush you, right? And, and you know, I think this, uh, and so it's heavily stacked in the favor of us. Um, and you know, known for our, our regions have a predilection towards fascism. And we'll yeah, use those like guns. The, the, battle, the battle royale solution actually yeah. is the uh, is the fascist solution because Absolutely. Um, if if uh, resources get more scarce and scarce day by day, we have to come to a point where we step down or mm -hmm. just kill the people we don't want to have access to resources. And yeah, uh, yeah um, that's essentially yeah. how it's gonna we're go in the spawn the point room. with an AKM. Like, this is, yeah. it's ridiculous. Um, but, so, kind of to tease out, right, that socialist, world federalist, res 
part uh, as the solution. There's just a few things, right? I, I, I want to emphasize. And that is, um, you know, we talk a lot about cutting back uh, personally of, you know, the things we consume. And sure, us in the West, we consume far more than we actually need to, right? Um, but one, an individualist response is not going to give us a solution. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's just a fact that we overproduce um, goods, right? And, it, and it's an inherent flaw in the capitalist system. Right. We have we have the working class. Right. Produce everything. Right. Uh, from food uh, to everything we use, my computer, my phone, everything. Right. But then we also need the working class, the majority of society to buy those goods. Right. And nowhere in the world. And we'll never get to this point where the working class makes enough money to buy all the goods. And so we overproduce. And it's particularly dramatic uh, with food, right? Uh, companies throw away vast amounts of food. You know, we saw a lot. It made headlines of, uh, last in uh, in the states here. Of you know, the COVID epidemic happened. Uh, supply chains broke down somewhat, and we just saw like hun like tons of just milk being poured out into fields and. Uh, Farmers going through and just ripping up a whole crop of food. Uh, and this is something that happens every season, right? It was just exacerbated by the crisis. Um, we have enough resources to take care of the majority of, if not all of humanity. Um, but like you said, we need a democratic, we need a world government uh, with a uh, centralized planned economy. Uh, we have. On, and that's yeah. the point I want to stress here, uh, that yeah. it looks more on the supply side than on the demand side. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and what would that look like, right? People hear a planned economy, they think the Soviet Union, they think, <laughs> uh, you know, the People's Republic of China, which has kind of moved away from a lot of that. But, you know, the uh, crimes of Stalinism, you know, mm. are uh, fixed in our minds. And you too uh, live in countries that either experienced communist rule or <laughs> was betrayed by the communists. Uh, I don't have that history, but you know we have that uh, revulsion to uh, uh, Stalinism here, um, and so that that's a concern, right? Um, you know, uh, as someone with trot sympathies, right? You know, I firmly uphold like. A planned economy, a nationalized economy, as a way to transition away from the capitalist system. Um, but the central thing is uh, democracy, uh, a workers' democracy. Uh, in the case of a socialist transformation of society, is essential because without that democracy, that's when bureaucracy sets in. Without the masses yeah. in control of the levers of power, which we do not have in this. Uh, in the capitalist system uh it, it's we're going to just revert to like petty t tyranny um and so i i do want to emphasize that and you know one country nationalizing the commanding heights of the economy like here in the united states if we did it it would make a significant impact on the world scale and so would china if only that would happen <laughs> um you know th these things would have a dramatic impact but it has to be worldwide you know and uh so you know 
the only solution is a socialist program, right? A socialist program includes the abolition of the military, uh, which, you know, thinking of the United States, is a polluter on the scale uh, larger than the majority uh, of countries, right? So the abolition of the military. Nationalization of the oil industries, right? We're taking away the wealth of the people that profit from the destruction of our planet. And we're removing them from a position of influence over the way our government functions, which that is crucial, right? Because now, right, it's these companies that really dictate public policy. No matter how democratic our systems are, um, we have to... Um, we have to fight for public ownership of the land, right? Of all extractive industries, because only we, as the people, uh, it shouldn't be left to a board of directors thinking, oh, we have to increase our profits. No, it should be, okay, we need this much. How are we going to do that in a sustainable manner? Um, there's a lot of talk about how inefficient plants, uh, economies are. But if you look at the capitalist system, it's not exactly efficient in the distribution of resources. It's not exactly efficient when it comes to uh, human rights. Um, and so we have, uh, we have to uh, fight for a global socialist transformation. Um, and we have to abolish uh, existing trade agreements. And we have to write up right off the debts that the West has imposed on the rest of the world uh, so that we can help enable uh, the countries we've exploited and extracted their resources and to be able to give them the resources to try to make their homes sustainable um, to prevent this circle from closing in farther. Um, and so, really, the solution is is a, a World Socialist Federation, right? Uh, a world federation um, with under a liberal, uh, a capitalist uh, world order. One, I'm heavily skeptical, and I'll, I'll honestly say it's just downright impossible, uh, given the economic interests of the capitalist class and that uh, governments are run by the capitalists. Um, but let's say it happens, right? These same companies and these same people will have the uh, vested interest in the most resources to carry out what they want. And so if we want to save the planet, if we want to tackle uh, income inequality and, and the various ills of our world, right, it is a socialist transformation that we should be fighting for and not just a world federalist one. They go hand in hand, right? But w without the socialism, right, this world federation means nothing. And that's something I will always be stressing. Mm -hmm. Rant over. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a great final word for our episode today. Well, Miguel, actually, I'd like, I... like to say one yeah. thing. Yeah. What okay. Okay. Before we go. Just as I felt like we had to address uh, carbon capture as like the bullshit that, that it is. Speaking yeah. of like uh, resources that are dwindling down, stop with the fucking asteroid mining shit. Yeah, yes. yeah, I'm so upset by this as well. <laughs> oh, gosh, like, don't get all your fucking solutions from science fiction, for God's sake. I love H.G. Wells and sci-fi as much as anyone, but it is not a political program. Stop it. It's it dumb. 
It's just straight dumb. You're operating in a world of fucking fantasy. Yeah, like, man, stop like... it. Offer real-world solutions. If this happens because of technological advancement, fine. But you do not substitute it for real-world change. That's just pure utopianism. It is so dumb. And even if it was possible, how are we going to get those resources there and back in a timely manner that is cheap? It's in... Oh... <laughs> I'm glad I brought this up. It's dumb. I fucking hate Elon Musk and his stands. It, it it is like, you know, apology apologies for capitalism are bad enough, but at least do it in an intelligent manner. At least, you know, operate in the real fucking world. Don't just be like, "Oh, we're going to make this shit out of HG Wells and it, it's going to work." Right? You know, and that that's a problem with science fiction in, in general, right? We chalk up these great sociological and political changes just based on technology, uh, which is not how the world works. Um, but, oh, it is so dumb. Uh, I'm, I, I think I froze Alex. <laughs> yeah. I really went off. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. My internet is down. You're good. Uh, well, sh do you have anything yeah. to add? Or should I uh, end the episode? Sorry, I didn't get that. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to add? No, uh, no, no. I'm, I'm done. Like, uh, I'll rant right. about uh, mining asteroids and on another day. All right. Well, and with that, I think we'll end this episode. So I can stop yelling. Um, <laughs> um, and so you can follow this podcast at Most Moderate on Twitter. You can email us at mostmoderate@gmail.com. You can follow me at Off Brandon's. Uh, you can't follow Alex. Miguel, where can they follow you? Uh, you can follow me at Miguel somewhere. I tweeted today. It was great. The internet. I, I. Tell us what you think okay. about the the uh, telling the uh, describing the world in the gamer terminology segment. Should we keep that or should we scrap that? I'd be really interested. Uh, I like it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I I dig it. Um, you can follow Esten uh, on Twitter. You'll find that in the show notes. Uh, you can listen to his podcast, Total Global. Uh, they just had a great uh, episode uh, on uh, the uh, Everend uh, case in the UK. It's fantastic. Um, you can uh, fo you can find the Young World Federalist at YWF uh, dot world. Uh, and you yes. can become a member and join the International Socialist Working Group. Or the name might change, but, you know, you can follow that. Uh, so you can hear me rant more often. <laughs> um, and so, and with that, we'll end this episode. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, talk to you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.
I, dude, uh, when I'm not focusing on trying to like steer conversation and stuff, I feel like, <laughs> oh, I can have my hot takes. <laughs> and guys, um, I gotta go. No, sorry.